come on, Startup Nation, you can't figure this out? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And our editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. Shalom to you. Shalom to all of you. It's late Monday night. The crickets are out. The snow has settled over Whoville. And we're here just sending sweet vibes out to the Jews across America. This week, we welcome back Unorthodox Guest Hall of Famer linguist Sarah Bunin Benor, who's schooling us in all things Jewish, lingo, speech, slang, argot. And we spoke with Jackie Tone, whom you know from the TV show Glow and her new Netflix series, Best Leftovers Ever. Friends, I hope that I may take center stage here before we get to our amazing guest. Can I have a moment? Yeah, you weren't on last week's episode, so you just banter away. I meant you have two weeks worth of buildup. The first thing is a little bit of pod business. And when I say business, I do mean cha-ching business, like the kind with dollar signs. That's the only pod business we know about here on this nonprofit podcast. You may remember that two weeks ago, I asked our listeners to pony up and pay the cost of postage to sign up for my print newsletter to get actual snail mail from me. And I'm at about 170 subscribers. So I need about 30 more. If you could go to markoppenheimer.com slash newsletter, that's markoppenheimer.com slash newsletter. I will hook you up. And the newsletter is going to start in about two weeks. I've already written most of it. And I could really see, by the way, the David Fincher biopic of this startup, The Really Social Network. Be like, no, I have a good idea. It's like, it's letters, man. We send letters in the mail. Daniel Radcliffe is Mark Oppenheimer. When I sent out a note to some of my friends about this, I had some friends write back to me and be like, whatever, another crazy scheme. Sure, you can have my however many bucks a month or a year. And then I had a few friends who went insane, like who just wrote to me and said, this is the best idea Ever. I've been craving mail. You are my messiah. <laughs> like, it's a small group. It's a small audience. But And most of them are in prison. But, you know. <laughs> well, they need the mail. They need the mail more than ever. My grandpa, before he used to play chess by mail, but then by the end, it was only with prisoners. He did correspondence chess? Yeah, like before you could do it online. And, and even still, once you could do it online, he liked it. But so... Like every six months, he'd get like a letter from the jail being like, are you sending signals to our prisoners again? <laughs> He's like, I just, there's three people left to play chess by mail with. Night to E7. <laughs> Night to E7 at midnight. <laughs> tap, tap. Yeah, I look forward to that <laughs> David Fincher movie also. Mark, I will say, so I'm on your website. You have the monthly basic. Then you also have the monthly mensch option. The annual awesome, which, you know, not as strong, but okay. The annual angel. And then the life partner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit disappointed, I have to say, with this marketing. I thought they would all mimic Friendly's menu items, like the Fribble. The Fishamajig, the Fribble. No, but I think he needs to expand. It can't just be for people who listen to this podcast. Oh, no, no. I've got some heavy hitters. Like, I went into my whole media. Many people who have been in the news for being laid off or winning prizes are subscribers. It's in a very elite bunch. It's Unorthodoxeme, the J. Crew, and my my sweet industry connections. Hold on, for being laid off or for winning prizes. So really good luck and really bad luck and nothing in between. And you're just taking all of their money regardless of whether they have jobs or big winnings. I'm well, I mean the stimulus baby. I mean we're in Biden time now. Like we're all gonna have money. How does Biden time compare to Jewish time? <laughs> Biden time is like even tie. It's a Roman Catholic thing. But Biden time's grandkids are it's that's Jewish time. But look I come not to spread the newsletter today, but to spread brotherly love. The other important thing you'll remember from two weeks ago is we talked about Jewish Greek life on campuses. Because in Philip Roth's book, The Facts, he wondered whether Sammy, as a nickname for Sigma Alpha Mu, is somehow anti-Semitic. I have 
Such an update. First of all, we got the most amazing mail. David Farby wrote in from London. As a British listener, I have difficulty understanding what a U.S. college fraternity is, why it has Greek letters, and especially why any nice Yiddish students should be involved. (laughs) Stephanie, do you want to field that one? Tell him what is a fraternity sorority, why it has Greek letters, and why would Jews do it? Because I co-sign on his letter, I got to tell you. I just learned that my alma mater, there's a campaign underway to get rid of all of Greek life. At Duke? Yeah, there's, I think that's happening. There's a lot of pushback. There's a very active Instagram account. I spent a lot of this weekend looking at it. I guess, you know, fraternities, sororities, they're social groups. I mean, they have been around for quite some time. Um, they have various meetings at various different schools. Occasionally, they're a way to get good housing. Occasionally, they're a way to get any housing. And I think that they are Christian sororities, probably. I went to the Kappa Kappa Gamma convention, and we said a prayer before every meal when I was president. And then her chapter advisor looked over at me, and she's like, don't we have Jewish girls in our chapter? And like, there was more of a Southern accent. And I was like, yes, we do. Uh, you're looking at them. So basically, yeah, they're Jewish fraternity and sororities. I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that. Look, David, what you have to do, and I know Liel and I are on the same page here, is you have to go watch the great Beverly Hills 90210 episode where Andrea Zuckerman rushed a sorority and at the end came out as a Jew by wearing a Star of David around her neck in front of all of her Gentile sisters. The uh, candlelight ceremony was really moving. I, I loved it. What got into you, huh? What'd you have to wear the star for? I pulled for you all week long. The girls were all ready to accept you. But not if I'm Jewish. Are you crazy? I'm Jewish. I had no idea. Yeah, well, everybody in the sorority knows, and everybody is fine with it. They are? Of course. Because I don't flaunt it. That's the trick. Wait, and did she get in? Liel, she did get in, right? She did get in. She did get in. They respected her Jewish pride. But then it turns out it wasn't a sorority. It was like an actor's union. And then she became president for <laughs> and life. she president of the Screen Actors Guild. It was very awkward. We've been trying to book her forever. President of Screen Actors Guild, Gabrielle Carteris. Nancy Fogelman writes, having studied at Michigan in the 80s, A.E. Pies were the nice Jewish boys and Sammy's were the not nice Jewish boys and did in Ooh. fact get into a lot of trouble. The name Sammy did not strike any of us as derogatory in any way, though we may have said it with derision after they broke into our dorm cafeteria and stole all of our plates and bowls. (laughs) One proud Sammy told me they would just toss them in the garbage after eating since they had such a huge supply. Knock on Sammy. Jeffrey Grossman, a longtime listener and correspondent, writes, Proud graduate of City College, class of 68. I was not a fraternity type of guy, but I knew many who were. The idea that Sammy had any anti-Semitic tinge never arose. As for stereotypes, I recall A.E. Pie was seen as more affluent which at City College in the 60s meant you could afford to buy your textbooks new rather than used. While Sammy was a bit more down-to-earth, working class, maybe a tad less polished. Finally, Scott Gladstone writes, longtime listener, first-time caller. Sammy, Brandeis University, class of 90. The AE Pie guys were preppy and New Jersey Westchester Jewish. The Sammy guys were more chill and more welcoming of non-Jewish members. Sammy's were from Boston, Maine, Chicago, and Rockland County. Sammy had both more athletes, swimmers, and the two of us Jewish guys who threw things for the track team, and also more tokers. I would like to hear from anyone who has graduated college since, I think, 1990, since that was our most recent (laughs) graduate of this batch of emails. Tell us what it's like in the new millennia for the the ZBTs, the Sammys, the APIs. Break it down. I'm glad you mentioned ZBT, Stephanie, because, of course, I gave entirely short shrift to my ancestral Greek letter organization. (laughs) Uncle Dave Schreiber, the one who's a dead rigger for Attorney General Merrick Garland, was a ZBT at Penn back in the 1950s. So, Having given short shrift to ZBT, I decided I had to go deep on all three of the historically Jewish fraternities. Who were their alumni? What kind of men? Wait, before you get to that, Mark, you know you're a, you're a ZBT legacy. 
So you could have, you would have gotten through at least some of the rounds by just having that legacy. Had my alma mater a ZBT chapter, which it doesn't, only AE Pi. And Stefan Weiss was always trying to pull me in. Well, maybe you could do it now, like a late in life bar mitzvah, honorary doctorate. Is there an age limitation? I would do it. I will accept honorary membership in any of these. I'll put put myself out to the highest bidder. Okay, so how about this? You guys have to join different fraternities and then we'll we'll go from there. (laughs) I I call Sammy. Well, wait, wait, wait. So here's our test. Are you an AEPI guy? Are you a Sammy or ZBT? AEPI alumni include podcaster Mike Pesca, internet tinkerer Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> Jerry Lewis, Wolf Blitzer, Ooh. Sheldon Adelson, the late Sheldon Adelson, casino magnate Sheldon Adelson, and both Simon and Garfunkel, all AEPI. Is that where they met? Sammys include Marv Albert, the not Jewish, but awesome LeVar Burton, Hank Greenberg, Bernie Madoff, <laughs> Bob Dylan, Donald Most from Happy Days, Ralph Mouth, Steve Wynn, their own casino magnate, and Philip Roth. Briefly. But ZBT includes Mad Magazine founder William Gaines, New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft, auteur Harold Ramis, and a songwriter who goes by the name of Leonard Cohen. The interfraternal Olympics would be amazing on this. I do feel kind of A-pi just because Simon and Garfunkel, I totally want them to play at my jamboree. Liel, so Sammy and ZBT are for you. Which one you want? Are you more of an Adelson or a Win? Uh, I, I don't know. Either ZBT or IDF. It's also an awesome fraternity. <laughs> Their initiation, we can't talk about. <laughs> now, look, I realize I'm giving short shrift to Jewish women's Greek letter organizations, and I yeah. look forward to the male directing us in the right direction. For I know there are two or three of them, and I want to I wanna say more about them. So let's hear from the alumni and, uh, you know, party on. News of the Jews. Liel, do you have any news of the Jews for us? Oh, I have so much news of so many Jews. We start as ever in Israel. And as ever, the news of the Jews are delicious and half-baked and have to do exclusively with food. I, I want to start with my favorite news story. Baked like the the Sammies at Brandeis, who are just token all the time, apparently. And even more so, because talk about half-baked ideas. Israel is now at a stage where it has finished vaccinating pretty much everyone, with the exception of several populations that they feel need to be kind of given some extra love and attention to, including the Haredi, the Orthodox population in cities like Bnei Brak. And so the country's best marketing minds came together and said, what could bring people who traditionally were sort of not on their priority list to maybe get vaccinated in in several communities? And they came up with a perfect idea. If you are a young yeshiva student and you have not yet received a vaccine, you come to a special station, special, set up in the street. There's a nice little booth and table. I've seen them. They're amazing. You get the vaccine. And you know what else you get with a vaccine? A black and white cookie. Someone wraps to fill in. You would, right. In a Chabad mitzvah tank. You would think it's a black and white cookie. Here's what you get. You get the vaccine, a challah. Oh. A pint of baked bean stew. A quart, a quart of cholent. Wow. And a can of Coca-Cola. 
Now, tell me that this isn't the greatest <laughs> scam you have ever heard in your life. It's like a meal for a day and a half plus a vaccine. Well, you know, it actually is smart because I've heard from people who are getting their second vaccine who spend the next day feeling sort of like fluish and feverish. Right. So I actually think that it should be like a matzo ball soup container you get at like the Javits Center when you go get your vaccine. You got a challah to dunk in the, the soup. I like this a lot. If we could like partner up with Seamless, you know, the food ordering app and be like, so you get the vaccine and then you get to pick whatever. <laughs> but while we're talking about populations that need to be coaxed, Israel has the same things for teenagers who are now <gasps> eligible. Wait, the teenagers get Cholent and Coke? Swedish fish? No, the teenagers no. get a selfie stand <laughs> and, and a DJ. There's like a stand, where, like just like a podium where you get like, a, you could take a selfie with like oh, a that's background amazing. that's like Insta ready. And there's a DJ. See, this is why they're at like, they're at the number one like vaccine rate. I love this. You walk up and it's like, what is love? <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> No, the DJ is obviously playing Breslover techno music. No, they're playing that Iranian threat song. Right. It plays shot through the heart and you're <laughs> to blame. COVID, you give love. From Hadaway to Bon Jovi, the Liel Leibowitz playlist. <laughs> I think that this is great because there's like, they understand this is this is about entertainment. This is about marketing. Like they really get it. I just love that that Israel is now at the swag stage of the vaccination. Yeah. <laughs> They're just like running laps uh, around us at this point. But if you think that this is the greatest food story out of Israel this week, it is not even close. Mark Oppenheimer, this is a favorite of yours. So take, take it away. I'm more than happy to. Pizza Drones, the Jerusalem Post writes, the future of pizza delivery or pie in the sky Jerusalem Post, always delivering the A-plus puns in their English language edition. Pizza Hut Israel plans to test deliver pizza by drone starting this summer, according to the Wall Street Journal. Okay, so you can, we're, we're late to this story. According to the Jerusalem Post, according to the Wall Street Journal, Pizza Hut Israel will be delivering by drone this summer. Deliveries will be made from only one Pizza Hut in the trial phase in B'nai Dror, a village near Netanya. Liel, my question to you is, given your deep knowledge of Israeli geography, why B'nai Dror? Why is that the test pizza hut for the drone plan in Israel? Because it is the site of the last fucking pizza hut on earth. Who? <laughs> when was the last time you have ever gone to a pizza hut? <laughs> Who goes to a pizza hut? Where are there still pizza huts? It's such a good way of spinning that there's only one left. But, you know, I so if you read further down in the piece— Delivery is not to people's houses. So, like, I think this idea of, like, you're getting, like, a drone dropping on your doorstep is incorrect. Oh, it's to the COVID vaccination center. Yeah, basically. Well, the, the ones that are left <laughs> over from the vac vaccine site. But it's, like, it's to, like, a parking lot, a pre-approved pickup place. And then <laughs> drivers wait there and then take it to your house. It's half kind of brilliant and half half you're like, just take it all the way. I think like 70 stoners will be assassinated before they figure out that they haven't fully changed the operating software from like full IDF, like anti-Hezbollah drone <laughs> to like pizza <laughs> delivery drone. I know. I mean, I just think that like for all of the hyper security, like it's like, I'm sorry, we're just putting pizza on drones and we're just going to be like, this is cool. We're doing it. Government approves. And the drone plays the Grateful Dead as it flies to you. In other news, Domino's Israel is just strapping pizzas to rockets and just shooting them at people. They're just repurposing all the old IDF weaponry. I mean, okay, you know how we've talked that the, the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, it's like the, the Mossad dolphin, the Mossad like 
what was there, a bird once, the falcon, and everyone's like, any animal that has a tracker on it. Right, they think it's IDF. Yeah, they assume it's... They're all in the pizza business now. So maybe, yeah, maybe there's like a pizza drone. I would watch this like spy movie. It's like, we Next use... Next season on Fauda. We use mules now. What, you mean like drug couriers? No, no, I mean actual mules. Actual mules. We stare pizza to them. They go to your house. Man, Narcos season five is like really tame. <laughs> But Liel, you you do me a disservice by inviting me to deliver the news of the pizza drones because what I really wanted to deliver was the news of the Genesis Prize, which calls itself the Jewish Nobel. Oh my God, is it a year since the last one? Apparently. Since Michael Douglas? The only story more idiotic than pizza delivered by drone is a million dollars literally tossed into the air for no good reason. So this is amazing. This year, the Genesis Prize, which is a million dollars to somebody who's done something for Jews who doesn't need the money, was awarded to Steven Spielberg, who apparently needed a prize. Now, this, of course, is a prize we make fun of every year. Since Natalie Portman won it, we made fun of it when Michael Douglas won it, when Robert Kraft won it, when Michael Bloomberg won it. As far as we can tell, it always goes to rich, famous Jews who I guess they can get to show up for a dinner. It's bizarre what it is. Except for Natalie Portman, who didn't even give them that because they were too dumb to figure out that that is what's going to happen. Right. What did she, she rejected them for, was it political? She rejected them. Yeah. She didn't want to sit with Jews. No, I think it was a BB thing. I think yeah. she would only say it if she could criticize BB and they were like, nope. In any event, nobody knows what this prize is for. But on its website, it does say that it is the Jewish Nobel, which will come as a surprise to everyone's Aunt Sylvia, who thinks that the Nobel is the Jewish Nobel. <laughs> but I decided to learn a little more this year. And I discovered, this is no joke, that in the press release back in September, they announced seven finalists. Did you know that there were finalists? It's not just Steven Spielberg. Wait, they announced the finalists? This is crazy. The finalists were announced in September. Apparently, we were all busy with other stuff like COVID or elections or whatever. Pizza drones, everything else more important. The seven finalists were Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, filmmaker Sasha Baron Cohen. Wow. Singer and actress Barbara Streisand. Nice former Chief Rabbi of the United Kingdom, Lord Jonathan Sachs, Zichronom Livraha, actress, producer, and advocate for the empowerment of young women, Gal Gadot. Just call her Wonder Woman. Founder of Salesforce, Mark Benioff, and Steven Spielberg. So the question is, at the meeting of the High Council, how did they decide to go Spielberg and not Gal Gadot, which was a clear mistake? Even, even before we talk about the, the decision, this reads like someone with a very limited knowledge of the world and even less imagination and or intelligence literally wrote down the names of the seven Jews that seven they Jews. know. Se yeah. Literally the seven Jewish people that they could They're think like, of. Barbara Streisand was in movies. <laughs> the guy who tells the joke, uh, the guy on the Supreme Court, the guy who's the rabbi, the guy who's the Wonder Woman, uh, the guy who's rich, and the guy with the E.T. And the Salesforce guy. This is it. You pick one. I don't care. So I also have to say that of these, Steven Spielberg is not the most inspiring choice. I mean, I, I agree. Like, why are you not going Gal Gadot if you want this prize to be at all relevant to any person? And look, the whole point of this, isn't it like you get a million dollars, but it's not for you. It's like you give it to some kind of outreach. Like you set up, you're like, I'm really passionate about like Jewish literacy. So I'm going right. to give the money here like when and, Michael Douglas. And I'm really happy because now finally Steven Spielberg will have an opportunity to put his money towards some kind of Jewish charity, which he totally hadn't done before, you know, with the show archive. <laughs> He's it's like, great. guys, have you heard of the Shoah Foundation? Fantastic. Um, Thanks a lot. Idiots. Schindler's List. That's give it to the Schindler's List guy. Yeah, I mean, I also love the idea of giving this to Barbara Streisand. Like, it's just <laughs> just that conversation. I mean, look, I believe Sasha Baron Cohen would have been a much more interesting choice because he probably would have, you know, given all of his like outspoken anti-Facebook work. I mean, he's really about anti-Semitism on social media. I mean, it's not about it. He's about fighting it. So that actually would have been a very interesting and somewhat controversial choice, right? Because you know he would have given some fiery speech. 
really made people, I, I just, I'm like, why are you not choosing Sasha Baron Cohen or Gal Gadot? Also, if you're in a finalist one year, does that mean you're never going to be a finalist again? Yeah, this was Mark Benioff's year. Game over for Mark Benioff. Is he related to the Benioff that's married to Amanda Peet? There are two Benioffs, right? David Benioff? She's, isn't she married to the writer who wrote 24 Hour? Yeah. Yeah, I think she's married to the cool one. Amanda Peet. Let's get it. Amanda Peet deserves one. She wrote that great Hanukkah children's book. Guys, Alicia Silverstone? Come on. I would argue that Alicia Silverstone and Barbara Streisand are doing the same amount of advocacy for the Jewish community. I would argue the whole cast of Clueless should get it. Paul Rudd should get it. Alicia Silverstone. Brecken Meyer should get it. I don't know if he's Jewish or not. Bring them all. Mark, do, do quick math. $1 million divided by 14 million Jews. How much do we each get in cash? We each get seven cents. I mean, that sounds auspicious. <laughs> <laughs> what can we do with seven cents? Let's get like coins back in business. <laughs> one Israel bond, <laughs> one tree. Okay, let's split it in half. Let's say every family. Every family, 30 cents to encourage procreation. Every Jew gets a quarter. To play a song that makes them happy in a jukebox of their choosing. In a pizza hut. Here's the thing. I get it. Clearly, the people responsible for this prize understand the value of, like, publicity. And, like, if you give a famous person a lot of money, they can make a very public donation to or start a charity or something like that. I think it comes from a very good place. I mean, the problem is, as you're saying, like, give $100,000 to 10 charities. I think they've done some, like, spinoff things of smaller grants which would make more sense, I think. I just, I'm like, what is Steven Spielberg going to do? Like a filmmaking school? We're into publicity. We give to what all the kids are into. The Barbara Streisand is very <laughs> popular these days with kids. Can I also just say, I obviously a million dollars would mean a lot to me, but it seems a little bit cheap as a prize. I mean, the Genesis Prize for the best Jew in the world who's done the most for the whole world, and it's the Jewish Nobel. <laughs> Wasn't that the joke in Austin Powers? One million dollars. Like, that in 1964, that had seemed like real money? And now you're going to give Steven Spielberg a million dollars? He's like, I'm sorry, I'm going to need more than that if you want me to finance this movie. Oh, wait, he's like, wait, what, the, what is this? <laughs> this shit's a little weak. <laughs> Come on, guys. Yeah, one million dollars is what Daniel DeLewis spends on, like, shoes in, like, one movie. Let's figure out what seven cents is going to get each of us. Because I would love that idea. I'd love, like, a call being like, excuse me, we have your seven cents. If I had a nickel for every Jew in the world, they would still do more good than <laughs> wasting a million dollars on a stupid ceremony with Steven freaking Spielberg. Jackie Tone. She's the host of the new Netflix show Best Leftovers Ever. She played Melrose on the Netflix hit Glow. She's played Gilda Radner. That's like the Jewish trifecta as far as we are concerned. Welcome, Jackie. Hi, everybody. Stephanie, when you just said that, I kind of got like excited, like in my little sternum. I was like, that is the Jewish trifecta. I, I didn't realize. Well, especially because my character on Glow is so Jewy. I mean, she has a mezuzah. She throws a Passover Seder in, a, in the woods. But we are going to get to that. Leftovers, Holocaust survivor grandparents, and Gilda Radner. We don't <laughs> need anything else as far as we're concerned. That's it for you. You're done. Done. Okay, so let's start with this show, Best Leftovers Ever. Can you tell us about the concept? It is pretty much the most, like, absurdly wonderful thing I've seen. Best Leftovers Ever, I would say it's like Pee Wee's Playhouse meets Chopped. Like, it's sort of just a wacky cooking competition series focusing around leftovers and repurposing them. 
with ingenuity and creativity. So in round one, our cooks, they each have a fridge behind them and they have to turn we say like, hey guys, you weren't feeling well last week. And so you've got really bland food in your fridge. You got applesauce, an avocado, cottage cheese, and some toast. And you got to turn that into a flavor bomb brunch, right? So that's round one, repurposing leftovers. Then round two is more repurposing takeout leftovers. And my fridge comes out, who's sort of a character on the show. My fridge comes out and in it are, let's say, Italian leftovers. The three cooks pick at random. One gets asabuco, one gets chicken parm, and so on. And they have to turn those Italian leftovers into some high-end cuisine of a totally different ethnicity, country, genre, however you categorize food. So one of my favorites was this woman took asabuco and she turned it into two types of curry. One of them was an Indian curry in a pakora that she made from scratch. And the other one was sort of like a really beautifully plated yellow curry with rice. It's just shocking. There was no way that started as Italian food. And, and the thing that, that I found the most fun about the show is like watching these great chefs looking at these ingredients. You, you see this plate of like soggy day old fries being converted into like high end gnocchi. And the judges are like, oh, yes, the consistency and the mouthfeel of these things. Like, Guys, this is like soggy day old fries like a second ago. Yeah, that dude actually had a burger and fries and made gnocchi in bolognese and took the burger meat and turned it into bolognese sauce. I mean, it's wild. What does it taste like? Does it actually taste good? Like when I watch you eat it, I'm like, I saw what that started as. That was like a cottage cheese avocado. Like, yeah, the food was incredible. We weren't bullshitting, you know? I mean, there's no judge that's a Simon Cowell. Like no one's, it has more of a Great British Bake Off feel where like no one's trying to be where a everyone dick. Everyone wins. Just, yeah, I mean, not really because we give away more than a cake tray on our show. We, I mean, it's 10,000 bucks in the form of a casserole. Part of what's so lovely about it is, A, the food was actually delicious. And that's, I think, what's so cool, right? Like, that wouldn't have been as good if you just reheated it. And that's why we throw out so much in this country. Because when we order at a restaurant, they give you way too much. And then you have leftover a meal or two. And a lot of the time you A, don't want the same thing again. B, it's not really as good reheated. So now we're giving you these tips and tricks to repurpose. All right. So let's let's get deep here on the spectrum of leftovers. One end being seeing leftovers as a necessary evil and the other being seeing them as a profoundly essential Jewish thing that defines, you know, who we are and how we approach cooking and eating. Where do you stand and why? I never met a leftover I didn't like. That is where I stand. And I think it's part of the reason I got this gig because I think it's a weird thing to be passionate about. And certainly I don't think something you can fake being passionate about or caring about. Like I was in this meeting being like, no, you don't understand. We don't like in my, I come from a family where we don't throw anything away. And my mom comes from a family where, since her parents are Holocaust survivors, were, they, like, my mom would go in the fridge and there would be, like, a chicken and there was nothing on it but bones, no meat whatsoever. So she would, like, make room in the fridge and she would throw it out. And then her mother would come home and be like, Baila, why, like, tell, ask her in Yiddish, like, why did you throw out the chicken? These, these bones are good for stock and there's still meat. There was no meat, my mom said. But my grandma would, like, scratch to the bone to get any little thing because that 
was what they had to do for a long time. And now they're in the United States. They don't have a lot of money. And we're going to use every little thing we have. You should bring that story up in the show. I think it'll really kind of bring the atmosphere really bring up. Really bring the room up. up. Yeah. Bring the room up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like your show doesn't talk about the Holocaust enough. Yeah, <laughs> I was wondering, too, if those three gentlemen that famously posed for Holocaust Remembrance Day with their Auschwitz tattoos, they could pop on to Leftovers. <laughs> Just to really, you know. It's so funny, though, because it, to me, it does feel so deeply historical, right? You know, so many ethnic communities have leftovers as such a core of their of their identity. But the show's coming out during the pandemic when, first of all, we're all, it seems like, stuck at home a lot more than we used to. We're not going to restaurants in the same way. We're trying to support them in the ways we can. But it's so funny because it seems so deeply, like, genetic, right? Like mm-hmm. It does to me. But so, so much of the moment. So I'm wondering, you know, I kept wondering, like, when you filmed it, is it extra resonant to you now that it's coming out during the pandemic and we're, we are home cooks all of a sudden? Yes. We filmed it in November 2019. And so we didn't know when it was coming out. And then we found out Netflix was having to change their release dates on a lot of stuff because if they, right, production slowed down so much that if they released what they had in the can at the rate they had planned on it, they would have run out of content by whatever day. So they were pushing and pushing things. And we needed the content. Yes, Yes, and we needed the content. More than ever. And we were were consuming it at like a rate, a never before seen rate, right? So um, finally, when we got our release date, I didn't find out until November that it was coming out December 30th. And it coming out during the pandemic ultimately proved to be, I think, a good thing. You know, it'll be, it's hard to tell. You never know. So how much do you know about food? Like you say things that indicate that you are like more versed than the normal person. Oh no, I never meant to give anyone an impression ever that I was more versed than your average bear in when it comes to food. I eat what I eat and I'm real a real picky eater. And it's kind of funny because all the people that know me well watch me eat on the show and they're like, who is that? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't know. I, I like trying new things. I more than anything like hosting. And so for me, it was just like a whole new world. And everything I tried on the show, there was no like secret spit take, spit bucket on the side. Like we were eating the food and loving it and eating it. And like, I don't think I ever had duck before in my life. And I was like, this is what, or veal. I never had veal just because like the thought of it doesn't really speak to me, but cool. I, you know, I ate it and everything. It was just really interesting to me. So it really, I would say expanded my palate. That's for sure. And on national television, which I like. Yeah, I do a lot of things that I would never do in the privacy of my own home on national television. I feel that's a great way to go through life. Yeah, right? Like, I'm like, I'm going to talk about being the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. Never interpersonally, but I'll say that shit on TV. I want to talk about Gilda Radner. Am I correct that there is a portrait of her behind you? No, that's Be- that's my other idol, Bette Midler. Oh, okay. That makes sense. But I have, um, this is just audio, right? Not video. Yeah. Like this won't, okay, well, then I won't go get my two Gilda posters from my closet that are hanging. So I've loved Gilda forever. Ever. When I was a little kid, I used to play her VHS, her SNL Greatest Hits VHS, constantly memorize all the sketches, do all the impressions. And then when I was a little kid, I was uh, always up for these like sketch comedy kids shows on Nickelodeon. And I got this development deal at Nickelodeon for a spinoff of that show, All That. Remember that sketch show? Yeah. Yeah. I did a show called And Now This. It was going to be a sister (laughs) show, All That, Now This. So Rosie O'Donnell hosted our pilot and it was going to be this big thing. And I was going to be you know, this kid sketch person. And I've been doing stand-up since I was 14. So yeah, I just always, Gilda was always one of my heroes. And I had next to nothing going on in my acting career. I was represented by a very small talent agency and a sleeping manager. And I think I was quite honestly the last person in the city who hadn't tried out for this movie. And I guess they'd seen enough people 
And they were like, okay, let's maybe see the Jewish comedian girl who already talks exactly like her and has the exact same features and looks kind of like her. Maybe we'll see her. And they saw me. And it was an interesting experience because what I did in that audition could have been looked at by a different casting director as overreaching, desperate, goofy, too much, sucking the air out of the room. I've gotten all those critiques on auditions at other times in my life. And I'm a person who, for better or for worse, I get, oh my God, who is that? How did I not know about her before she speaks to my soul? Why is that you living in my sternum? I get that excitedness, but I also get the like, okay, I'm actually set. Oh, you know, I tried out for this Gilda role and I went in and I changed costumes. I changed my (laughs) hair. I brought a guitar. I wrote a song. I played eight characters because it was a free form audition where they were like, listen, we need someone to play Gilda Radner. So this movie takes place before her SNL days. But if you can embody some of those characters and show us that you can do that and be silly, that would be cool. So I did them all. I did Emily Latella, I did Candy Slice, I did Lisa Lubner, Bob, I did uh, Rosanna Dana, of course. And then there was a part of the movie where it was Gilda playing Joan Baez. So it was me playing Gilda playing Joan Baez, and I changed into the 70s outfit, and I took out my guitar, and there was, like, lyrics in the script, but I'd written a whole song to the lyrics, and... I mean, this could have been the most embarrassing moment of my entire life, where a, <laughs> a different cast director would have been like, Okay, honey, stop changing your shirt. We're actually all set, sweetheart. Have a good day. But instead, it was Allison Jones, truly, regardless of this story, one of the greatest casting directors known, one of the greatest casting directors in the business. And she was here for it. She just sat there in her chair with her arms crossed, laughing, watching me act like a crazy person. And right before I left, she said, she yelled down the stairs, Jack. And I looked up. I could cry. When I, every time I think about this, I get teary. She said, Jack. I said, what's up? She said, don't cut your hair. And it was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, they're, they don't tell you to not cut your hair unless right. they want you to look like you look. Then again, I got a text message a couple weeks ago from a casting director for something I tried out for that said, so just to be sure, you're for sure available for this in Maine, February to May. And I was like, yes, ma'am. And then I never heard anything again. So the don't cut your hair moment or the you're sure you're available for this moment doesn't even always mean you got the part. But still, your Gilda audition, didn't that end up sort of translating into the glow opportunity? Yes, because Allison Jones, who cast A Feudal and Stupid Gesture, that was the net, the name of the Netflix movie where I played Gilda, her protege, Jen Houston, who cast Girls and helped cast Orange is the New Black, Jen cast Glow. And when Allison was trying to get me the Gilda role, Folklore Goes, that she sent my tape to Jen in New York and was like, this is Gilda, right? And then Jen was like, yeah, 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 we're, yeah. So then when I came in for Glow, it was the biggest thing I ever tried out for. And again, I had nothing going on in my career. And I showed up and I introduced myself to Jen and I was like a little probably desperate, but didn't mean to be. And I was like, dude, this is the greatest pilot I've ever read. Like what's, I'm Jackie. And she looked at me and she goes, I know who you are. And then when I went in her office, she was like, Allison sent me your Gilda tapes. And when I saw them, I said, that girl has to be on Glow. And so then they changed the character from Melanie Rose to Melanie Rosen. Is that correct? <laughs> Listen, guys, it turns out, yeah, at this point in my life, you can't take the Jew out. She's in there. They're like, we're, we're just going to Jew this up for you. Yeah, we are one. Like, they were like, if Jackie's going to play Melrose, she's going to play Melanie Rosen. And there are going to be mezuzahs and there are going to be satyrs. So can you tell us a little bit? I know a lot of our listeners have... Have watched Glow. We um, actually had Rachel Shugart on the show who wrote for that and we're in the world. But for someone who 
is not. Will you sort of tell us a little bit about Melrose, about Glow, about the Seder? Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> about the Holocaust? Just those few things? Yeah. Okay, I'm about to talk for an hour. <laughs> All right. Glow, it's a scripted series based on the wrestling reality show of the same name from the 1980s, The Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. So that was an unscripted, super wackadoo, female wrestling show and we are doing sort of a scripted version. And what's so exciting about it is that at that time, this was probably one of the first times on television that women were allowed to be athletic and they were funny. So it was like a sketch show meets a wrestling show. It did a lot of things. It was crazily before its time. So our show is 15 women in the 80s who don't really know what they're trying out for. And it turns out it's a wrestling show. And it's basically just highlighting this ragtag group of misfit women from all different walks of life, different ages, colors, body shapes. And it is deeply empowering to be a part of. And from what I understand from the fans of the show, equally as empowering to watch and see Certainly this level of representation is, I won't say unprecedented because Orange is the New Black obviously killed it, but it's really rare. And I think as an actress, you know, before Glow, anything I ever tried out for, you know, there was one or two women on the show. And then there was like the hot girl who didn't get to say anything funny. And then like her quirky friend. And so with Glow, you now have 14 of us wacky ass rodeo clowns all getting a chance to tell our stories. So it's extra gutting that we didn't get to make our fourth season because of COVID because it was already written. All the actors were ready to go. We shot two and a half episodes. All the sets were built. The costumes were tailored. It was really extra gutting because it wasn't just that we got canceled. We got our renewal basically got reversed because they were like, we don't know how we're going to safely allow 15 women on top of each other every day for months. So that's sort of the beginning and middle and end of the journey of GLOW. And the fighting is like literally in, in the ring. You leave it in the ring. Oh, yeah. And we wrestle. So we don't have stunt doubles. Only one of us had ever wrestled before. One of the women on the show, Kia Stevens, is Awesome Kong in the WWE. She's a famous WWE wrestler. But the rest of us are actresses and thespians and women who like... You know, Betty Gilpin always tells this funny story how, like, the most active she ever was with her body was when she was at theater school and, like, faking walking around when the teacher would call out which animals they should be. And then she would be like, I'm a lion. And that was, like, the most she'd ever done with her body. And I, before Glow, had never kicked, thrown, or caught anything ever. And now I'm on this show where, for a month before every season, we are fully in the ring with multi-Emmy winner Shauna Duggins and wrestling royalty Chavo Guerrero, whose brother and uncle and father, all rest famous wrestlers, and they are teaching us 14 rodeo clowns how to suplex, body slam, schoolboy, crucifix, run the ropes, beat the shit out of each other. I have chills and I'm going to cry because I miss Glow. And we are doing this and simultaneously not even realizing that we're rewriting the stories we've told ourselves the, our whole lives of like, well, we're actors and we're drama people and we're comics and I'm not an I'm I'm not an athlete and just removing these limitations, stripping these limitations from ourselves every minute of every day It's just like had to be the most exciting, joyful, empowering experience of my life, bar none. And so you actually channeled your your real-life experience in other ways, right? With, with the character's backstory? Yeah. What you're, I think, alluding to is that in season three, episode six, Melrose, my character, and Jenny, Ellen Wong's character, 
have a super intense friendship moment where we're sitting around a fire and I'm talking about how like my mom's giving me shit that I didn't come home for Passover. And I'm like, just feel like such a bad Jew. And the girls kind of don't get it. And they're dismissing me. And Jenny and I are in a fight. And I grab Brittany, who plays Carmen in Machu Picchu. And I go, I have an idea. Come with me. And I rip the hubcaps off my limo. It's the most ridiculous show ever. God, I miss it. Oh, I'm getting sad. Okay. We rip the hubcaps off my limo and I use them as Seder plates and we make a makeshift Seder. And I, and all the girls come around and we're sitting around a fire and I'm telling them, you know, we're dipping, we have the salt water. I mean, everything is a makeshift version. Graham crackers or matzah, which obviously could never be, <laughs> but she's trying and it's really sweet. And the girls are kind of roasting her a little bit and, you know, she's getting serious and they're like, you're weird when you're not funny. And then she sort of comes out with like, yeah, well, it's not always funny. It hasn't always been funny for me. It wasn't funny when my dad, when he was looking to buy us a house after he came here after the war, and he wouldn't buy any house that didn't have an attic or a basement so we could hide if it came for us again. And I am getting emotional now. And it's like, they knew that I was the descendant of Holocaust survivors and they wrote this into this television show. I mean, it's just, it's never, it never doesn't hit me like it's hitting me right now. Never. And I've told the story many times. Um, but what's crazy is that Ellen, who plays Jenny, is the direct descendant of survivors of the Cambodian genocide. And so her family came here on a marine boat, snuck in fucking bags of rice. Je her parents, not even grandparents. Ellen is alive because her parents knew someone and everyone else in their family and all of their friends, all decimated. But Ellen is here because her parents were able to get out of the Cambodian genocide. And so she and Melrose are having this moment of both staring at each other and being such good friends and never having had the conversation of like, well, I'm also, I also have inherited, tra inherited trauma. I also am the survivor of a genocide. And they connect on that in such a powerful way and truly a moment unlike any other I've ever seen on television. And I think one of the most special parts is I asked our writers if we could change out one of the names they wrote and change it to my Aunt Pestle, who's my grandma's sister, who didn't get out. She stayed with my grandma's parents and they were all executed in Poland. Yeah, so they changed the name of the character that Melrose was talking about to my Aunt Pestle. So now my grandma's sister forever will be immortalized. Immortalized on Netflix. Wild shit. <laughs> no, that's incredible. I mean, it's so so crazy because you, you're such a great comedic actress and to so see like this deep well that, that's underneath it. I mean, it's really amazing. I mean, and you bring it to all your characters. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, Glow was the first chance I got to do that, right? Because I think this is, oh, wah, but the plight of a comedian who's like, hey, do you think I'm just writing jokes for your entertainment 24 hours of the day? But when you're a funny person and like me, your value is so wrapped up in being funny and making, elevating a situation and making people feel good. I am that way pretty much all the time and well a big portion of the time and it was really powerful for our writers and showrunners to infuse that reality into Melrose of like okay cool but like being your jester is exhausting to me and <laughs> I'm a real person and I feel that way all the time and then they wrote it into her character which was like god they hit the nail on the head like 100% of the time I think this is very emotional yeah this isn't as funny as I thought it would be <laughs> Wait, I got a ton of really great Holocaust trips. Tell us your favorite one, because we tell them a lot on this show. Oh, I, you know, I don't have any. And you know what's really weird? There was one about pizza when I was a kid that used to make me mad. And I think I punched someone, like about, you know, the ovens or something. Oof. Yeah, I don't. I, I genuinely just like, I've never 
it's so weird. I mean, comics are obviously not supposed to lose their sense of humor, even when it's about them. Like that's the, but I do. I'm just like, nah, I don't think it's funny. Miss me with it. I mean, I use humor about it. Like, here's a funny story. I posted on Holocaust Remembrance Day these three men who had their Auschwitz tattoos on their arms. And it was such a powerful photo. It circulates every year. And most people were sending me these gorgeous messages of like, thank you so much for this representation. And you don't know how much it means to me to see someone in your position reminding everybody about the Holocaust and never forget, especially in the light of these terrible, terrifying neo-Nazis and the Trump administration and... QAnon and just like a massive, massive resurgence of anti-Semitism and really powerful messages. And it's these three men in this picture, again, with their tattoos. And just one dude messaged me, fuck, Mary, kill. <laughs> which really made me laugh. Which really made me laugh. And I was like, see, I could joke about it, right? Like, I wasn't like, fuck you, man, this is serious. I was like, well played, whoever you are. Well played. That's amazing. Jackie Tone, it is a treat always to chat with you. Our listeners should be watching Best Leftovers ever while they're on Netflix. They can also watch Glow and Feudal and Stupid Gesture, in which you play the amazing Gilda Radner. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank you guys for having me. And for those of you listening at home, the only place I post the things that I have going on is Instagram. So follow me at Jackie Tone. Jackie, T-O-H-N. Jackie Tone, thank you so much. This is amazing. Enjoy those leftovers. My pleasure. I love you guys and I love your pod. See you soon. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. mailbox. First of all, Jenny wrote to us and said, Mark commented hot cocoa sounded a bit goyish. And as a Gentile who loves your podcast, I thought I'd weigh in. Thank you, Jenny. She writes, hot cocoa is a beverage made with cocoa powder, sugar, and hot milk. Hot chocolate is a beverage made with chocolate bars or chips melted into hot milk. It is richer and creamier. Personally, I think hot chocolate is the way to go. Thanks for all you do, Jenny. Now, Jenny, you're being overly literal. I understand what you're saying, but actually I reject your analysis. <laughs> a lot of people call both of the drinks cocoa and a lot of people call both of the drinks hot chocolate. Like you might be technically correct in a culinary sense, but really that you're avoiding the de- big debate here, which is a hot chocolate drink that's based on milk and some sort of chocolate. Do you call it cocoa or hot chocolate? Because most people have one name for both. But she is saying that she is a Gentile who calls it hot chocolate. So she is defying your theory, Mark. I disagree. I just think she likes splitting hairs. I just think she's a a highly punctilious Gentile. But also, I can't believe I've been drinking hot cocoa my whole life. I've never had a nice one with chocolate bars. Don't hop on Jenny's bandwagon, on her yacht, on her Gentile yacht. I'm on it. She's Jenny with an I and I'll do whatever she says. I have to say, I'm a little bit on the Gentile yacht myself because uh, (laughs) where I come from, hot chocolate is all all just the chocolate melted in the milk. Stephanie, you want to read to us from Madeline's letter uh, straight out of Denver, Colorado? Yes. This is um, a question for all of us, but maybe especially Liel, she writes, a dear Israeli friend of mine recently reached out in need of a special medicine for her elderly mother that is no longer available in the land of milk and honey. We secured a prescription, but now we are trying to figure out how to send them over. Many packages we have sent from the U.S. to Israel over the years have been tampered with or not arrived at all. Do you have any advice as a seasoned U.S.-Israeli liaison? Lielzon? She actually posits you are not a liaison, you are a Lielzon, which I really, really respect. I'm into that. By the way, I just got home from getting my new Jewess tattoo, heavy inspired by y'all's and Alana Glazer's reclamation of the word. Amazing. There's a lot going on in this email. I love, can we see a picture of that Jewess tattoo? Madeline C. in Denver, Colorado. Great letter. Liel, what do you have to say? And can we also see a picture of your post office? Because I send packages to Israel all the time and (laughs) never have they been tampered with or not arrived at all. Maybe, am I reading too much into this email that's both from Colorado and references a special medicine (laughs) about the nature of this specific prescription that is needed? I was about to say, what are you sending there? Because the way to go may be the Pizza Hut drone, which will get it there (laughs) faster. Just call the one Pizza Hut in Natanya and they come and pick it up. I assume that everything that goes into Israel gets like opened at some point and then they're like, okay, whatever, this is boring. And then they send it along. This is how you imagine. Like there's one air, like it goes to one post office. And this one guy be like, I do, I do not like this. Yaron. It's always Yaron. Yaron is like, I do not like this. The president of my shul is an amazing guy who is a, a naval sub commander in the IDF and he is Yaron. Well, of course he is. That's why he's the president. He doesn't even go to the shul, but he's still the president just by virtue of, of being Yaron. <laughs> we just found a guy. Right. <laughs> like that guy. Look, Madeline, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, really, I send packages to my own non-elderly mother all the time. And they arrive just fine. Switch post offices. Just go to the next zip code over. 
Uh, letter of the week, Dear Unorthodox, I've spent the last year really diving into my Jewish identity, reading the books, baking challah, observing Shabbat, etc. As a result, I've become hyper aware of anti-Semitism. Recently, some friends were playing a Zoom game where you're given a prompt and have to write a response. The prompt we were given was, title of a sex ed book from the 1940s. One of my friends suggested the title, Do It Missionary Style or the Nazis Win. I was horrified, but everyone in the group laughed. Was I being oversensitive? Is my discovery of my Jewish identity making me way more sensitive to these things than I should be? Thanks, Rachel. This is a curious question. Rachel, 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 uh, great to hear from you. I would love to try some of your challah. Your challah. I don't get this. I don't think it's anti-Semitic. I think it's just not funny. Right. That's what's offensive about it. It's a bad joke because everybody knows that Nazis love missionary stuff. <laughs> it's all they do. I get it. Like when you say 1940s, there's like not much you're thinking about, at least if you're me, like it's going to be something about the Nazis, right? Like what else happened in the 1940s? I'm not sure. Right. Like what would I do if the prompt were, you know, sex ed book from the 1940s? It would be like Bess Meyerson's Guide to Fun in Bed. I don't know. Swimming Upstream with Esther Williams. You would not, you would not go Nazis? 1940s doesn't take me immediately to Nazis. My God, what a charmed life you've led. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been like filleting the Fuhrer or something like that. I mean, come on. I'm like, are we talking early 1940s or late 1940s? Because that really changes things. Is she being overly sensitive? Rachel wants to know, as a newly proud and out Jew, is she being too sensitive to anti-Semitism? I think you're not being too sensitive. I think you're now hearing things in a new light. And I think that's really like, that's part of this journey that you're on. And I think it shows that you are moving in some direction and having some kind of growth. Just because something that maybe wouldn't have struck you as odd or confu- or weird or even at- struck you as anything to notice a year ago seems... Right. As a Jew, you're funny. And now you notice that your friends aren't. And it offends yeah. you. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> what? Yeah. You could have come up with, like, even something like Hot for Himmler would have would have done the trick. Right. Right. Like, do it missionary style or the Nazis win? Yeah, you have too many of these. It's like you've been thinking about this. Seriously, who who thought of do it missionary style or the Nazis win? Like, I'm sorry, Beth, was it you? After two glasses of Chardonnay? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, Beth. I think this was definitely a guy. Find your Goebbels spot. How to drive your man Buchenwald in bed. Okay, I'm sorry. No more, no more, Liel. You have too many of these. They're coming to your head too quickly. You all know Sarah Bunin Benor from such unorthodox appearances as the Latka versus Latki debate or her discussion of orthodox code switching. We wanted to talk to her again about, you know, Jews and language. No big whoop. Why do we talk a lot? Sarah Bunin Benor, professor, linguist, Jew. Sarah Bunin Benor is a professor at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in Los Angeles. She's the author of the magnificent book, Becoming From, How Newcomers Learn the Language and Culture of Orthodox Judaism, and also the more recent Hebrew infusion about language and community at American Jewish summer camps. She is a Jewish-American sociolinguist par excellence and a friend of the show, and she knows a ton of stuff, and it's always fun to talk with her. Thank you for coming back to our show Professor Benor. It's always great to be here. So I want to talk about this book about Hebrew infusion and Jewish summer camps, not just because my daughter is a Romanic. And so I have these words bouncing around my head like kochavim and magshimim and ilanot and like 
half the Hebrew I know is Ramah Hebrew via her. But before we do that, let's be a little bit current and talk about anti-Semites, because why not? I understand that you've been doing some work on the language of anti-Semites. Tell us about that recent research of yours. Sure. So I have a paper coming out in the American Jewish Yearbook. One of my favorite yearbooks. (laughs) That paper is about non-Jews' use of Jewish language in America. Most of the paper is not about anti-Semites. It's mostly about non-Jews who are Jew-adjacent. But there is a small section in there about the language of white nationalists, neo-Nazis, anti-Semites. And in that section, I found some really interesting things that I did not know before, such as the use of some Hebrew and Yiddish words like anutta shoah, which is a phrase that these anti-Semites use to make fun of the way that Jews talk about the Holocaust a lot. And so if there is something bad that happens, they'll say, oh no, it's another Shoah or oy vey, another Shoah. So they're they're using Hebrew and Yiddish words. So it's another Shoah, like another Holocaust. Yes, another Shoah, but they say it another to highlight the New York accent of Jews. Something we say all the time. We're just always saying, oy vey, another Shoah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't they know only we're allowed to make fun of how much Jews talk about the Holocaust? That the arrogance <laughs> of these people. Okay, so what else? That's a good one. We're going to work that into our vocabulary. What else? The goyim no. That's another phrase mm. that they use. And it is sort of a reference to the protocols of the elders of Zion. This idea that a panicked Jew is responding to some occurrence that would ostensibly reveal Jewish manipulations or deceit to non-Jews. That's that's a quote from the ADL website that talks about a bunch of these phrases that they use. A fuller version of that would be, oy vey, degoyim no, shut it down. <laughs> They get us so right. How do they know? And then, of course, on Capitol Hill, recently, there was the group of mobsters, of rioters who surrounded the Israeli TV reporter and said something like, what does Goyam mean to you? It's part of anti-Semitic rhetoric in America today. So when we talk about Jewish English, of course, it's mostly Jews that use this language, but it's also anti-Semites who use certain features of it. You know, they're not going to go around talking about the schach that they put on their sukkah and their lulav and etrog, right? (laughs) But they have very specific linguistic features that they highlight. And what I find very interesting is that it's not just words, that they're also using the New York phonology. They associate that with Jews. And understandably, I mean, there is a very strong connection between Jews and New York, but it's interesting that they highlight that. And do they ever get into the syntax? Do they ever say things like, you want that we should let you run all the banks? Or is that, that's too deep for them? (laughs) I haven't seen that, but it's possible that that happens. I I haven't done a full analysis of their language because it's a little too disturbing. After rioting on the Capitol, we're going to go by his house and have a little schnapps afterwards. Something (laughs) like that. So the paper sounds fascinating. What else is in this paper? Give us a little sneak peek of what else have you discovered about Gentile or Jew-adjacent usage of, of Jewish language? Sure. So I did find that social networks are an important factor in which words from Hebrew and Yiddish are used by non-Jews. So if people have more Jewish friends, they're more likely to use these words. I also found an interesting connection to queer identity Hmm. that non-Jews who are gay or lesbian, especially gay men, use some Yiddish words more than straight non-Jews. Both men and women who identify as gay or bisexual are significantly more likely than heterosexuals to report using schmutz, kvetch, money, shmoney, and chutzpah, 
<laughs> Chutzpah in the positive sense when speaking to Jews and non-Jews. Do you have a theory on that? Is that because of the historical nexus of oppression? You know, as it was Susan Sontag who said that the two great shapers of the modern sensibility are queer irony and Jewish moral seriousness, I think, is it, you know, we're often yoked together historically. Right. Yes. I I do quote Sontag in this paper, the idea that queer culture, especially among gay men, involves some theatricality or camp. And Yiddish words have become part of that culture because of Jewish female characters and caricatures like Joan Rivers, Bette Midler, and Linda Richman, the character on Saturday Night Live. I was going to say, right, based on Mike Myers' ex-mother-in-law, as it happens, right? Exactly. Because Myers himself, not a Jew, interestingly. So Jewish women have imported Yiddishisms to gay male culture by being kind of camp icons. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Can't wait to read the full paper. Meantime, uh, we're a little behind on this. This book came out, what, last year? In July, yeah, July 2020. It's terrific. Hebrew Infusion, Language and Community in American Jewish Summer Camps, which was written by you and your co-authors, Jonathan Krasner and Sharon Avney. What does this book argue? Well, we argue that the use of Hebrew at Jewish summer camps is primarily not about learning Hebrew. It's primarily about connection, connection to Israel, connection to Judaism, to the Jewish people around the world, and especially to the summer camp. So when Jewish camps use words like go to the Chadar Ochel or after Birkat, let's all meet at the Teatron for Pe'ulat Erev. Those kinds of sentences are common in Jewish summer camps around the country of all different types. And they might sound strange to people who aren't familiar with them, but they're actually very important in camp culture. And when people attend these camps, these words become part of their associations with the camp. And we call that camp Hebraized English. But Hebrew is incorporated in other ways besides just the words that are used within English sentences. Another important way is through song. Most Jewish summer camps have Hebrew songs and prayers. And sometimes camps even translate English songs into Hebrew. And at Ramah camps in particular, they do a theatrical production in Hebrew. And people just love these productions and they end up sticking with the campers throughout their lives. So we have some great examples of alumni of Ramah camps, people who attended in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and they still remember the Hebrew musicals that they performed or even just attended. And so people will sing songs for us, like um, one woman who attended a Ramah camp remembers this song. Sergeant Pepper Vihala Haka. That's so great. Yeah. It's like just finding infinite ways to do a don olam, right? I mean, it's just like anything can be Judaized. That's just great. So Sergeant Pepper in Hebrew. Well, that's an interesting kind of opposite example because a don olam is a Hebrew song and by having different tunes of it, well, yeah, you're Judaizing the tunes of like rock right. around the clock or whatever. But in this case, it's an American musical that you're that you're translating into Hebrew and right. also Judaizing. I mean, they they have interesting ways of Judaizing them. Like, for example, a young Judea camp that did a Jewish version of Bye Bye Birdie that was Bye Bye Bernstein. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the main character made Aliyah instead of joining the U.S. Army. 
<laughs> and they had one, the Wizard of Oz, they had, it was, they called it Hakosem Meeretz Oz, which means the magician from the land of Oz. And Dorothy searched for her homeland, which turned out, of course, to be Israel. And the Wicked Witch of the West was the only character who spoke English. And she was ultimately melted, not by water, but by Hebrew letters. <laughs> that's like very, uh, you know... Kabbalistic? Yes, that's very Kabbalistic, that the Hebrew letters yeah. would come in and sort of exert this <laughs> magical power. Now, one of the issues you raise is that there is some tension about the aims. There are people who want these camps to produce little bilingual children, which I think they seldom do. And then also there's this pushback from some people who say that Camp Hebrew makes it harder to learn the real thing if and when you ever actually want to do that. How rigorous is it or should it be? And then can it ever interfere with language acquisition if you if you make Aliyah, let's say? So yes, it has definitely changed over the years. Well, it's changed in different directions at the different camps. And my colleague, Jonathan Krasner, wrote the historical sections of the book. And one of the things he found was that even though people say, oh, Ramah used to be a Hebrew immersion camp and it used to be all in Hebrew, and now there's hardly any Hebrew, but that's not exactly accurate. That even from the very beginning, there were people who criticized the use of Hebrew at Ramah because it wasn't a fully immersive environment. Camp Massad was, but Ramah camps did have a lot more Hebrew in their early years than they do now. So we do talk about that transition in the book, but we also talk about the transition at JCC camps and reform camps to using more Hebrew throughout the years. Mm. So if you look at reform camps schedules from the 1950s, you see that they have very few Hebrew words and the words that they do have are Jewish life words, Havdalah and Shabbos. And, and they did use the Ashkenazi pronunciation initially. But then in the late 50s and early 60s, they transitioned to using Israeli Hebrew pronunciation and a lot more Hebrew words. So there are schedules, a daily schedule from 1957 and another one from 1966. The early one says rise and shine, and the later one says boker tov. The early one says worship services, and the later one avodat hakodesh. Breakfast and aruchat boker, cabin cleanup and nikayon klali, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it's just so interesting how they made that shift in the the early to mid 1960s, which was the time that the reform movement was becoming more Zionist. And what about the second part, which is? Does it help or hinder or neither if people want to at some point become really conversational in Hebrew? I think it only helps. I don't think it hinders. Some people are concerned that people at camp learn some Hebrew words and phrases incorrectly, like, for example, saying the chadar instead of the chadar ochel. Another one that people like to make fun of is the word marp. So marp is short for marpea. It's used for infirmary. And the Hebrew word for infirmary, the modern Hebrew word that's common today is mirpa'a. But in Israel, on kibbutzim, they use marpea. And at the time when these camps were founded, especially Masad in the Poconos, the Hebrew immersion camp, when they were founded in the 1940s, they used these words from kibbutzim and they kind of stuck. And actually that word marp became common in many camps of all different types so that it's still even used today. And people make fun of it and understand that it's different from mirpa'a, but they don't know the history of it and, and why it's used. When people learn 
Camp Hebraized English, it's not going to have a negative impact on their future learning of Hebrew. It will have a positive impact on their desire to learn Hebrew. And in fact, that is one of the goals of some camp directors to use Hebrew in camp so that people will be excited about Hebrew and see it as their personal special language and want to learn more. One thing I wonder about looking at my daughter, Rebecca, who's had a number of years at Camp Ramah, it seems to have encoded some of the non-English pronunciations in her vocal cords, right? I mean, she has no trouble saying chug, which for people, there are a lot of people who get to adult life, try to learn a fricative and can't really do it. And she seems to have much greater facility with a lot of Hebrew sounds than I do. For example. I have to think that helps as well, right? I mean, hearing Israelis say Hebrew with proper pronunciation, it can't hurt, right? Well, yes, but that doesn't happen that much at camp for interesting reasons. So yes, there are a lot of Israelis who work at camps, shlichim, emissaries, that come from Israel. But at most camps, the shlichim, the emissaries, do not speak Hebrew with Israeli accents. In fact, they learn camp Hebraized English. So they, <laughs> they learn that they're supposed to speak this weird Hebrew. I mean, it's not even Hebrew. It's just, it's really English with Hebrew words. And so they learn the Hebrew words that they're expected to say, but you're right that they might still say chugim. They might still pronounce it in a more Israeli way, whereas some Americans might say chugim or chugim with more American vowels. So yeah, they might be hearing some Hebrew from Israelis. And, and that's actually another source of tension is, do the camps want to use Hebrew in ways that Israelis do, or do they want to continue their American innovation? And part of it is what we call sociolinguistic projection. That is seeing your own language through the eyes of others. So even if the Israelis aren't criticizing the use of Hebrew at your camp, you're seeing your use of Hebrew through their eyes and thinking, oh no, what are they going to think about this? So we, we definitely had several examples of Americans turning to Israelis and saying, oh, you should you must be uh, annoyed about this use of Hebrew or or sort of making fun of their own Hebrew, knowing that the Israelis will have a different way of saying it. So interesting. So if parents want to send their kids off to a summer camp where they're going to get, you know, some more comfort with Hebrew, is there one that's particularly good? Are there things to avoid? Is it just kind of all good because it's enthusiasm and it's camp and kids love camp. What's your counsel for the parents out there? Well, if your goal is language proficiency, then there are a few options. There is a camp in Canada called Masad, Manitoba, and that is a Hebrew immersion camp. They do all of their announcements in Hebrew, and they're expected to do their skits in Hebrew, and they're really into skits there. They call it shtick. Another immersive environment is Olensang Ruby Union Institute. They have a Hebrew immersion program called Chalutzim, and that's for high school students. That is sort of the pinnacle of the Asrui experience. Kids who go to camp at this camp in Wisconsin are exposed to Hebrew throughout the different age groups, but only a little bit. They do these fun Hebrew activities that I would call Hebrew infusion. Yes, they're in a Hebrew class, but they're really having fun with Hebrew, playing games and having races and doing fashion shows in Hebrew. But then they know that the pinnacle of the experience is the ninth or 10th grade Chalutzim Hebrew Immersion Division, where they are going to really learn Hebrew and 
are expected to he- speak Hebrew a lot of the day. Excellent. So what's up next for you? What's the next project? So yes, I'm actually working on Jewish names and I'm interested in surnames and in first names. I did a survey and I'm analyzing the data now. We looked at how people interpret different names as Jewish or not. So if you hear the name Ezra, do you think of that as a Jewish name or not? And also the names that people have and how that correlates with their background and the names that they give their children and how that correlates with their current Jewishness and social networks and all that. And another part of that is the names of pets. Many American Jews have pets and a lot of them give their pets Jewish names like Latka and bagel, a lot of a lot of food words. The Adam Sandler effect, right? Yeah. He had meatball and matzo ball were his dogs, right? I think. And Gabriel Savitt, multiple times a Jew of the week with his dog Yitz. Ooh, okay. I got to add that one. And then also a lot of historical figures. So a lot of dogs named Rashi. <laughs> and there's a... One of my favorite names is a cat named Golda Meow. Nice. Another favorite is Yasser Era Cat. <laughs> cat owners are much more into punning, which is one of the things mm. I hold against them. But I mean, you know, as a as a dog person myself, do you have children? Do you have animals? How do their names fit into your your big meta theories? I do have children. I have three girls, Aliza, Dahlia, and Ariella. And I do see that as part of this trend among American Jews to use distinctively Jewish names. And it's interesting. I had a conversation with my mom about this. She thinks of the names that she chose for her children as more Jewish than the names that I chose for my children, because the names she chose are biblical. Right. Sarah, Miriam, and Aaron, right? And names I chose are not biblical. They're Hebrew, uh, modern Hebrew, you know? And so, and that's an interesting question is, is what's more Jewish, our sacred texts or the Hebrew language, right? Right. Or the hot guy lifeguarding in Tel Aviv, (laughs) Yaron. Yeah, well, but also the names that I chose for my children are not popular in Israel today, right? Someone named Elisa is more likely to be an old Mizrahi woman than a young, (laughs) than an 18-year-old like my daughter, right? I might have told you before that when our first daughter was being born and I was talking to Shiri Gorin, who teaches Hebrew at Yale, Hebrew and and Yiddish, and she said, oh, and she's Israeli, what are you going to name her? And I said, Rebecca, and her face literally, like, it's as if she'd bitten into a sour lemon. She said, Rivka, oh, and she, you know, because in her mind, that's an elderly Haredi woman. And they're not Rivkas in hipster academic Tel Aviv culture. It struck as very elderly and kind of out of fashion to her, but not to me. I mean, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it actually, Rebecca is one of the names that is analyzed in great depth in a wonderful book by Stanley Lieberson about the fashion of names, how how names go in and out Mm -hmm. of fashion and how he named his daughter Rebecca at a time when he didn't think everyone was naming them Rebecca, but turns out everyone was naming their kids Rebecca. <laughs> and it's it's just so interesting how how names become really popular. And sometimes it has to do with someone in pop culture who used a name like that on a TV show or something. But usually it's it just has to do with names sounding cool at various points in history. You asked me about my pets. So we do have two guinea pigs and we let our children name them. And this was after I had already started working on this project. So I, I said, well, if, if they have Jewish names, then maybe they'll be featured in my book. So they ended up with one of them with a Jewish name and one not. Their names are Latka and Toffee. Well, all the best to Latka and Toffee. And thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. This has been terrific. Sarah Bunin Benor, one of the three authors of Hebrew Infusion, Language and Community at American Jewish Summer Camps. 
Thank you so much. It's been great to be here. Mazel tovs, Stephanie Taylor Putnick. To whom do you wish to send a Mazel tov, a Mazel tov, a Mazel tov? Thank you for using all three of my names. I appreciate it. Um, my Mazel tov goes out to former multiple-time guest, Michael Twitty, one of our favorite people to have on the show. He launched a new spice line. As he puts it, he's, it's a spice collection based on the journeys of my ancestors from Africa to America, the Cooking Gene Spice Collection. It's with this company, Spice Tribe. We're so excited for him. I can't wait to get my hands on all four blends. My Mazel tov this week is to a listener who just sent a piece of mail that I find delightful and shows great spirit, great ruach, great J. Crew energy. Correspondent Mindy still is keeping alive the months-old Jewish autocorrect thread. She wrote to us, our Zoom Kabbalah Shabbat service started having transcriptions last week. And tonight, Misha Berach came out as Michelle Beras. <laughs> An unimprovable way to start your, your Shabbos with, with Jewish autocorrect mistakes. Mindy, thanks for keeping it real. Thanks for speaking truth to power. A mazel tov to you. And who doesn't like a little Michelle bare ass in their religious service? In their prayer for those who are ill. <laughs> Wellness and healing. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tablemaj.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Send your Jewish name of the year to unorthodox tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts on Jewish Greek life to unorthodox tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. Someday soon we'll be coming to you live again and we want you to be first in line to book us live. Email producer Josh Cross, that's cross with a K at jcross at tabletmag.com. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt to buy the shirt that you're going to wear out of quarantine when you march proudly into the bright light of health. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sar Frebinator. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramucci. Our artwork is by Esther Wardiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by the one and only Steve Barton. Our shul president is Ellen Kan Zager. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Eric M. Burke of Temple B'nai Sholem in Huntsville, Alabama, the place for all of your Jewish spiritual needs in Huntsville, Alabama. We come to you again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios. Shalom to you, our friends. Our friends.